it's good to be here with you guys. Um, let's see, if you have a Bible, um, open up to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're continuing our study through the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to look at verses uh, 17 through 25 today. 1 Timothy chapter 5, 17 through 25. Um, while you're getting there, um, turn into it. Uh, I want to pray for us one more time. As, uh, as we get into the word um, together. So if you would, um, pray with me. <clears throat> God, thank you so much for uh, this time together. And God, you say in your word that we, uh, we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and against the spirits. And Lord, we recognize um, as we come in today um, to church for a, a ton of different reasons that um, it's, there's not just physical things that are happening, but um, spiritual things, uh, things that, um, that are, are, are beyond um, uh, emotions and our psychology and things like that, but that are um, affected by... Um, this spiritual realm that we sometimes don't know what to do with. And, um, and I pray, God, that as we, as we listen to your word today, that you would please speak to us, that for those in here that are um, feeling like they are under uh, oppression, um, under bondage, under weight, that uh, you would please move in a way that transforms us. And I pray for, for all of us, regardless of how we, we came in here today, that you would come and meet with us, uh, whether it was a good week, a bad week, or whatever week, that um, what, we, what we need most, uh, God, is, is an experience and an encounter with you. Um, all this information is accessible to all of us. We can go read commentaries. We can read blogs and articles. We can listen to far better communicators. Um, but what we're after right now and what we need right now is the work of your Holy Spirit to come and do something in our hearts and in our minds that can't be done apart from you. And so I just feel that today. I, 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 I feel that in a, in a heavier way than, than usual. And, I, and God, I don't know what that is other than I want to be sensitive to your spirit and sensitive to what you're doing in this, in this space and in this time right now. And uh, and I just pray that you would meet us. I pray that Holy Spirit, for the pain and hurt and confusion that's in this room for individuals that you would um, maybe not answer all of their questions, but your presence would meet them in that. So we need you. Um, come be with us. It's for your beautiful name. Amen. Uh, it's a good thing I wore my waterproof mascara today. Uh, I, full confession, I don't know what my deal is. Um, if you talk to like a lot of people that know me, um, it's like 
I'm like the Tin Man from Wizard of Oz. Like the tears, like there's not, they just don't happen unless like oil is put in them. And uh, it was worship. It was uh, thinking about this passage. It was thinking about um, how, what we're doing here. Um, and I'm, I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, worship team, I, be on standby. I like, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, Thank you for being a part of my therapy. Um, I, it's, I, I've been a Christian for a long time. Um, I've been a pastor. Um, I've not been a pastor at different points. Um, I've played church. I've been frustrated with church. I've been frustrated with leaders, uh, with church people. Uh, I've been frustrated with God um, and life. And at various points at time, this whole thing has seemed uh, ridiculous to me. And, uh, and I haven't had a category for how to think about church and God and how that relates to my life. And, and we live in such a material culture. Um, and so thinking about spiritual warfare and, and angels and demons. And if, if you're in here and you're new and you're not a Christian, the regular guy will be back soon. So just apologies and bear with me. Uh, I'm fully off book right now. Um, and uh, and, and yet there's, there's these times in my life where the reality of this becomes real. And for whatever reason, that happened this morning. Um, I don't know why. There was nothing that triggered it. Um, uh, I mean, anytime my wife leaves worship, it's unfair uh, to me um, uh, emotionally. But uh, I, I just am feeling... I think the weight of what it is that we're a part of as human beings. Um, I, there's so many other things you could be doing right now than this that are like way more fun and entertaining. Uh, and yet we show up weekly for a host of different reasons. Maybe it's out of duty, maybe it's out of obligation, maybe it's out of guilt, maybe it's out of a, a real desire and an earnest commitment to come to church, to be around other people and to experience God. But I, I feel at least in this moment that um, what, we are in, in, what we are a part of in Christianity in this time together is so real and powerful. You have to understand that what we believe in, that Jesus came to this earth because you and I are sinful and broken people. And he gave up full status of heaven and of glory and of presence in God and, the, and with, within the whole trinity and with all of the angels to step out of that, to be born in this crappy place at a terrible time in human history. And instead of leaning into all of his rights, to all of his deity, to all of his power, he lives as a, as a homeless person and loves and serves and communicates the truth of God to the point that he is murdered for what he communicates. And then three days later, when everyone is despondent and has given up all hope, he rises from the grave. 
And unlike any other religion, unlike any other philosophy, he offers us an opportunity to come back into relationship with him. And what he asks for us is belief. John 6 says, the greatest work that we do is to believe in whom he sent. And so we're not asked to to sacrifice our, who we are to become, in, to come into this faith. We, we are invited into it because of who he is and what he's done on our behalf. Um, I don't know. I think I can keep going now. Um, I, for whatever that's worth, I... I, I um, this isn't just a pious religion that we're a part of because it lines up with our American values. This isn't just something we're a part of to avoid guilt and shame. This isn't something we're a part of because our parents have forced us that it's in a part of our ethos and so therefore we just do it. The invitation is actually to come and experience life with God who is real and alive. And his hope for us is to continue to make us into new creatures, to heal brokenness within us. And, and, and the, the truth of Christianity, the truth of Scripture is that our brokenness is so deep that it's at a sin level, that it has fractured us from God, that you, you know, you live daily with yourself and can feel that type of brokenness. And the message of Christianity in Jesus is that he wants to heal that and bring us back into right standing with God. And then to daily, bless you, make us into new creations. And there's a battle that goes on. We in the West have a hard time dealing with this, but there is a, a raging spiritual battle that is against your soul and your heart and your mind, against your emotions, against your thinking, against what you're trying to do, of what you hear Jesus telling you to say. There is an active battle going on. And it's, a, it's, and it's an active battle that is a part of our church that Satan's desire is to divide his, this, this church, the church, and to create a really poor witness to the rest of the community that doesn't know and believe Jesus. That even these people who claim to believe him can't get their stuff together. And so as we uh, maybe talk about First Timothy, I guess that's my preamble, maybe an introduction, I don't know. Uh, 15 years of preaching and, uh, and this is a first. So um, I guess what I, I think what I'm feeling is that my hope is that we come into this text, we come into this time together being aware of the battle that you live in that's going on for you right now. That the great love that Jesus has for you, his great desire to heal you and to bring you closer to him has an equal fight against it with spiritual forces that are trying to kill and destroy your life and our church. Yeah. 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 
please. I mean, we're so far off schedule. Let's. Please. Amen. Amen. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm supposed to follow that up? Um, all right. Let's do a little First Timothy. Uh, it's going to be the scaled back version of it. Um, but I think there's some points uh, that I want to hit. Um, before we, uh, before we continue on and before we respond in worship. Um, all right, so we've been talking in First Timothy about the church. Um, and Paul's been talking to Timothy, who is his son in the faith, his deeply beloved son in the faith. And he's been encouraging Timothy on a whole host of issues, how to deal with certain people in the church, what to focus on, what to not lose sight on. And so it's this very practical book, this very uh, personal book to Timothy. And he's dealing with all these types of things that, that, are, that are going on in Ephesus. And Paul has this deep understanding of Timothy. He knows what his struggles are. He knows his temperament and his personality, and, and he writes about that. He also knows as, as like a good father and a good coach when he needs to be strong with Timothy and to give him emphatic language to not give up and to keep going. And in chapter 5, um, Chris last week talked about care in the church. We talked a lot about care, and we talked about the different groups uh, and how best to care in terms of widows, in terms of how to relate to older men and older women and younger men and younger women. And in this section, in 17 through 25, he continues on this theme of care, uh, but it's, it's specific to leaders how to care for leaders. And as I was studying this, the thing that continued to come to mind for me is this idea that in the New Testament model of church, the idea of family is central to it. You see the way that they live. When you look back at the, uh, at the book of Acts, especially in the early chapters, how generous towards one another they are, how sacrificial towards one another they are, how communal they are. They spend all this time together. But what's fascinating about it, and as you see the church continue to mature, is that all these different types of people come into the church. Different backgrounds, different religions, different views on politics, different views on, 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 on what the good life is, on all these different areas of life. And they are now supposed to come into this intensely communal uh, church and do relationship with one another. And so that's why when we see a lot of the New Testament epistles that Paul writes, he's constantly correcting. Like it's a dysfunctional family. And what makes Christianity unique is it's not homogenous. People come into Christianity who are rich, who are poor, different backgrounds, different countries, different ethnicities, different races, different views of politics, different views of all different types of things. The uniqueness of Christianity is that it speaks to everyone regardless of time, of culture, and location. And so on the one hand, that's profoundly beautiful. On the other hand, it's incredibly frustrating. 
Because it all sounds great in theory until you get two people in a community group together who think the exact opposite on whatever issue you want to talk about, theology, politics, whatever the case may be. And we look and these two people are trying to love Jesus and follow Jesus and do life and obey him. And, and the, we're supposed to figure out how do we do relationship together. It's challenging. And how are we supposed to care for one another? It's incredibly beautiful, and yet it is incredibly complex and messy. And Paul doesn't move away from any of those things as he writes about leaders, as he writes about how to care for people. In fact, I love N.T. Wright. He says this on, um, on this section. He says, the reason that Paul is concerned about the church caring for others is it directly and intimately is related to his view of God, Jesus, and the church and the world. It grows immediately out of his most central theological concerns. The church is the renewed family of God, and its family life must reflect that. Just because those of us in the modern West live in small family units and have rather little contact with our fellow Christians, certainly by comparison with the early church, that shouldn't blind us to the reality of the extended Christian family that Paul was dealing with. And hear this part. Christian, Christian if I can say it, Christian theology then is closely bound up with the guidelines for healthy family living. So we as a church are supposed to be a family. We're supposed to live as a family, which as we, as we read the New Testament, we could talk a ton about that, and we have been. But I want to talk about for the, I don't know, like 10 minutes, I think, um, I want to talk about what does it look like to care for leaders. We talked about these groups of, of people last week. Now Paul ends the chapter, and he points his attention and his pen to Timothy about caring for leaders. And I want to look at three ideas, again, very quickly. I want to look at encouragement and pr uh, protection and patience. Encouragement, protection, and patience. Uh, take a look at verse 17. Paul says this, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain, and the, work, and the worker deserves his wages. So Paul writing in the section of care turns his attention to the leaders of the church who are leading well. And so Paul, is his encouragement and his charge to Timothy is to encourage those that are leading well, especially those in the areas of preaching and teaching, to encourage them. And he, and he quotes scripture at two different points. He quotes first from Deuteronomy 25 when he says uh, that an ox... Um, should not be muzzled while he's working. That's a direct quote from the Old Testament. And then interestingly enough, when he says that a worker is deserving of his wage, he's quoting from Luke 10:7 from what Jesus says. Now, it's fascinating to see that, that Paul is connecting two verses, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, and we kind of get the idea that either uh, Paul got like an early manuscript from Luke about his gospel, or because they were missionary pals and did a lot of life together, that perhaps Luke even told him some of these stories about Jesus and what he was saying about, um, <clears throat> about serving and loving people. And so either way, Paul is quoting Scripture to say that for those elders, for those who are doing well in leading, especially in preaching and teaching, encourage them. 
it comes with a twofold encouragement. One is both to honor and respect them, but two, to pay them adequately, to take care of them, to be able to provide for them. And the reality is, as Paul writes this, and it's similar today, it's not easy to lead a church. It's not easy to lead within a church. Timothy knew this well. He's facing persecution outside of the church, and he's facing division with inside of the church. So he's facing significant challenge. And in today's world, it is, it is, no, it is no easier to lead within a church. Um, Christianity is not gaining the type of national spotlight and positivity that would lead someone to go, I want to get into that as a profession. It's a challenge. And when we look around, we see church scandal, we see church hurt, we see all these things. And yet, Paul is quick to say, for those that are leading well, encourage them, honor them, and support them. But he doesn't just say that because he moves on to the next section around protection. He says in verse 19, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove them before everyone so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. So you see the transition he makes. For those that are doing well, don't tear them down. Don't, you don't need to be quick to accuse or quick to judge or quick to uh, project motive, but encourage them and take care of them. However, for those that are not, there is accountability. There needs to be accountability. And I love the remarkable balance that Paul has on these instructions. He says, if someone comes to you and has an accusation, and Paul in this time could be dealing with people that are, are bitter, that are angry. In fact, in Acts 20, when he's leaving the Ephesian elders, he warns them. He says, after I leave, there are going to be savage wolves that come in to try to destroy you from among the flock. So it's actually not just a concern of what's going on outside, but that there is concern about what is going to happen inside, and therefore you need to be discerning, and you need to protect the people. And so he says, if someone comes to you with one, one person comes with an accusation, you don't need to dismiss it, but if they come with multiple people, you need to hear it and you need to deal with it. And in fact, we don't, it's a little bit ambiguous in terms of what exactly he's talking about, but he says, if that unrepentant sin continues to go on by a church leader, they need to be reproved publicly. And Paul, again, is quoting scripture back from Deuteronomy 19, where it says, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of a crime or offense that uh, they may have uh, committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. In laying out these instructions, Paul is calling for wisdom and discernment to be aware that there are going to be people who come with bad motives and bad intentions to gossip or to make false accusations against leaders. But... We have to be a church, and Paul is saying the same thing to Timothy, that holds its leaders accountable. We encourage and affirm and provide for when leaders are leading well because it's so challenging to do so, and yet we do not wink or we do not turn a blind eye to sin that is happening. Paul here is, is neither gullible nor is he cynical. He's not saying believe everything, 
He's being, as Jesus would say, wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. He's not gullible to say, believe everything, but he's not a cynic to say, they don't know what they're talking about. They're coming with bad motives. They're coming with bad attentions. Don't listen to them. He's incredibly balanced. And then verse 21, uh, he uses this language like we've talked about in 1 Timothy that is, is incredibly strong. He says, I charge you in the sight of God, Jesus, and like the Navy SEALs of angels to keep these instructions without partiality and do nothing, do nothing out of favoritism. I mean, it's fascinating. Why does Paul feel the need, uh, compelled to feel the need to write with such strong language? Like, who else are you going to call as a higher authority to say, do not screw this up? I'm talking about God, I'm talking about Jesus, and I'm talking about this group of elect angels. In front of all of them, don't be impartial and don't show favoritism. Why does Paul say this? Um, Perhaps for at least three reasons. Maybe number one, personally, he knows Timothy, right? He knows his temperament, and he knows that based on his temperament that Timothy might be susceptible to being influenced by people of position, by people of power, or by people of prominence. And so with the right, um, with the right pressure put on him, Timothy might be more susceptible based on his temperament to conceit or to capitulate to what's coming at him. And Paul is saying, Timothy, I understand your temperament. I understand how you are wired in front of God, Jesus, and the elect angels. Do not bend to these people. Perhaps we, it's because, in addition, the Bible is incredibly clear about not showing favoritism. Incredibly clear. If you read James 2, if you read Romans 2, if you look through the Old Testament, God doesn't show favoritism, and us as his people are not to show favoritism either. James, in writing to the church, uh, rebukes them because they tend to see someone who is dressed in expensive clothing, and they want to usher them up to the front to give them the best seat. But someone who doesn't, they're like, you can go sit wherever you sit. But we're going to save these seats. We're going to save this type of meeting. We're going to save this type of investment for the people who look like they have a lot of money or they have a lot of influence. And the Bible is incredibly clear about not showing favoritism. Third, the Bible is clear about not allowing people in power to use their power in unjust ways. God is a just God. And those that he puts in leadership, his expectation on them is that they imperfectly but would live and show the justice of God. And so uh, Paul is clear to not show any favoritism to these leaders, but to deal with them. And here would be my encouragement, anthem for, our, for the culture of our church, my encouragement would be that we would be a church that does not hold back encouragement from people. Encouragement for leaders and to leaders, we wouldn't hold that back. But we would also be a church that does not stay silent if there are sins that need to be addressed, that we'd have a culture of radical transparency, uh, individually, collectively within our leaders, but that we would be a church that thinks the best of each other, that is curious, but is also not going to wink and turn in a blind eye towards sin. Um, Lastly, patience. I'll try to get through this last part quickly as well. Verse 22 says this, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. 
The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them, yet the sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. So Paul here is maybe doing a couple things. This, um, the way some commentators look at this text is like, you know when you send a text to your friend and you're typing something out, but then you also think about three other things that you need to communicate. So you kind of just put that all in that text. And as someone's reading it, they're like, I don't know if this necessarily follows like a logical train of thought, but I get that you're trying to get these points in here. And when you look at this, you almost can start to make um, the judgment that that's kind of happening here. But Paul is either is doing at least two things here, potentially. The commentators will debate on it. When he says, do not be uh, hasty in laying on of hands, he's potentially referring to two things. Number one, he's referring maybe to new leaders. He's saying, don't be too hasty on laying on hands, praying for, anointing, appointing new leaders, because we want to see their character, Timothy. You want to see who they are in all these different circumstances over time, so as to try to avoid the sin that comes up where you have to deal with it publicly. Or he's talking to repentant leaders that were dealt with publicly, and they're coming back and saying, Timothy, I'm good, I'm sorry, I'm repentant, I've changed, I'm ready to rock and roll. And he's saying to that group, don't be too quick to get them back in. Let, their, let the time take its course for them to show fruit that is worthy of repentance. And it would make sense as you go, as you kind of look at the, the next verse when, when Paul says, and Timothy, uh, don't share in the sins of others, keep yourself pure. But then he says, stop drinking only water and use a little bit of wine. This idea here, Paul is thinking about Timothy. There's two kind of ideas on this too. Paul is thinking about Timothy. Number one, when he says to keep yourself pure, he might be thinking about the false teachers in Ephesus who were preaching this message of extreme asceticism that would say, do not marry, do not drink certain things, and do not eat certain foods. And so Paul is reminding Timothy that yes, keep yourself pure, but it doesn't need to go to this extreme asceticism where you stop drinking wine because it actually helps with your stomach issues. And Paul is looking at this and maybe saying you, some of your stomach issues that you think now you need to be pure and not touch this wine are, becoming from the, are coming from the challenges that you're facing in Ephesus with these church leaders. But either way, he's encouraging Timothy, be patient with these leaders, either those that are coming up and want to lead, see their life, see their humility, see their character, or for those that are coming in or trying to come back in after sin, be patient with them as well. And then he finishes out by talking about people's lives, that you will, some people you will see their sin right up front, it will be blatant. Other people, it will take time. And so what he's writing above is to try to encourage this type of patience, this type of encouragement, this type of watching to allow some of that to happen before putting them in a place of leadership. But the same thing is that, Timothy, you're going to see people that you can't mark as either good or bad because they're unassuming type people, and their good is going to be seen over time as well. One of the commentators on this section said this, so Timothy would need discernment and patience. It is the iceberg principle. Namely, that nine-tenths of the person are hidden from view. This is why Timothy must give himself time in order to form an accurate assessment of people's character. Attractive personalities often have hidden weaknesses, whereas unassuming people often have hidden strengths. Timothy must learn to discern between the seen and the unseen. 
And so as, as we wrap up and I'll invite the worship team to come up, um, appreciate your grace and patience with a, 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 a hybrid um, First Timothy text. Paul is laying out in chapter five and throughout the book that if you are a Christian and you are a part of a church, you're a part of this church, that our responsibility and our encouragement is to care for one another. And our expectation ought to be that it's going to be messy and that at various points, it's going to push us to the brink relationally. And yet, we are to be people that hold the best of each other, that look at each other in a way that is not cynical. Because it's easy to be cynical, especially in our world. And in some, in some, in some circumstances, it's, 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 it's proven over and over again why people believe that they should be cynical. But I think our baseline should be people, our posture should be people of love and care for each other, who give each other the benefit of the doubt and are curious about each other and our lives. And yes, we see in this section around holding leaders accountable, and yes, that is all true, and we need to do that, but I, my encouragement as we see through this is that we would be people marked by love and care for each other, and that our disposition would be to give people the benefit of the doubt to be wise, not to be gullible, but to give people to the benefit of the doubt as we love and serve one another. Because at the end of the day, Jesus died for the church. And he died for us to become a new humanity and a new kingdom so that we would experience what eternity is going to look like. But not just for us, because he says in John 17 that the way that people are going to know who he is, is in large part going to be demonstrated by our love for one another. And so as we receive that love and we give it out to other people, the onlooking world starts to see and they wonder, how can people with those types of differences love each other, care for each other, support one another, sacrifice one another? How do they do justice in a fair and balanced way? They don't just cancel and send somebody out to pasture to go die, but they have ways of loving and serving and reconciling. That's when I think Christianity becomes incredibly compelling. And so as we respond, I want to encourage you, and I want to encourage myself to be reminded of what we are a part of the good news of Jesus, that he loves you and died for you and has brought you into a family. And that we get to experience that in the joys and the highs and the lows. We get to experience that and work that out together and screw it up a thousand times along the way and yet to receive grace and mercy as we continue to do so in hopes that an onlooking world will see this and see that it seems unnatural or supernatural that it can't be just people gritting their teeth and trying to bear with one another, but despite differences, despite personality issues, whatever the case may be, love and serve each other well, just as Jesus has done to us. Jesus, thank you so much for this time. And Father, I pray that um, whatever was of you during these moments would please stick with our hearts. Um, whatever wasn't would quickly, quickly fall by the wayside. We pray, Father, that you would help us to respond to your love 
and your affection towards us. And I pray, God, that we would live that out within our church and within the people within our community, that they would see our love for you and our love for one another and our love for them and would be compelled to find out more about who you are, Jesus. Protect us from Satan, protect us from the enemy, and, and protect us from spiritual warfare. We need you. It's for your beautiful name. Amen.